0: Good evening. A proposal will be debated and voted on by the British Medical Association next month for GP surgeries to shorten their hours, yes, by up to two and a half hours a day. Now, I can't think of the number of times since I joined this programme in July last year that I've said to people that GPs were, certainly through my lifetime and before, just about the most trusted and respected member of the local community. But lockdown has done something. Online consultations. Well, it works, of course, for some who need repeat prescriptions, uh, for some who travel and work a lot. But the vast majority of people actually want to go and see their GP for a consultation, even if it lasts for just a few minutes. Now, I know we've experienced huge population growth. I know we simply don't have enough GPs in this country, and I'm not trying to drive a wedge between GPs and their patients. I'm really not. But one thing I've noticed, going around the country, doing the live Farage at Large programmes, and we'll be in Medway this Thursday, is one of the most common complaints is people say, we can't get to see a doctor. You know, we rang up the surgery, They said the first appointment was in three weeks' time. Now, we've just not been used to this over the near 80 years uh, that the National Health Service has been around. I think people feel let down. They feel disappointed. Uh, And I have to say, you know, when you look at the money that GPs earn, particularly outside London, they do really very well compared to many of the rest of the population. And I've just got this feeling that we're beginning to feel a bit let down by our GPs, a bit let down by the National Health Service. Let me know what you think. Do you think your GP is failing you? Let me know, faraj at gbnews.uk. Well, in the hot seat tonight is Venu Babu, a doctor from the (laughs) East End of London. Um, I know you're a GP, I know you take your job desperately seriously. Do you understand why we're now having this debate, which we've never had, Mm Any point in my life or my mum's lifetime, we've never debated this, we've always had absolute faith in GPs, in the NHS and now as you probably know a lot of people are paying to go private. What's happening?
1: So to be on the receiving end of this is actually heartbreaking if I'm honest with you, you know, even getting told from someone like yourself that that trust is breaking. Not affection, but that love, almost, you know, the person that you... Reverence. Yeah, reverence that you turn to when you're unsure about something, you want a bit of guidance. And trust me when I say we see this day-to-day when every patient walks through the door and they sit there. The last couple of months, the first five minutes of most consultations, I'm spending apologising saying, sorry, you've had to wait, or they're spending, venting to us.
0: And are they, are you sensing more frustration in patients? hundred
1: percent, hundred percent. And you have to let them vent because that's their space, you know. But mm. by the time we get to talking about the problem, we're already seven minutes into the consultation. And, and then it's never one problem. It's always a couple of things that have powered up because of the pandemic or because of, you know, whatever reason they couldn't get an appointment, like you said. It's really hard. I, I think when you take a step back and to answer your question, what's happened, mm. I think it's a supply and demand issue, you know? theres not There aren't enough GPs to meet the pressures of what is required at the moment. And I think after the pandemic, everyone has such high expectations. They, they need everything solved in that one appointment. And it's actually quite difficult. It's very, very difficult.
0: Well, it's only 18 months ago, we were all standing outside our front doors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were clapping you, Venu. We, we, we were saying, what a marvellous job you were doing. Um, I
1: mean, yeah.
0: It's, it's not just the pandemic though, is no. it? I mean, there is a problem. We have a population that is rising by well, some years, half a million. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Um, now the government have promised more GPs Well, we're going to need an awful lot more GPs, aren't we? But why? Why, oh why? Given what you're seeing, and Mm. I'm sure what you're seeing in East London is what GPs all over the country are seeing, how could it be in that situation that a proposal gets put overnight to reduce the opening times of surgeries by another two and a half hours a day? Where is the sense of that? I mean, but please defend your friends <laughs> in the medical profession who are putting this forward.
1: So, I don't see any sense in that either, and in my personal experience, I don't think that's a wise move. I wouldn't be supporting this, and I don't think my colleagues would be supporting this, because it's just not realistic. Nine to five, is just not realistic. The fact that it's eight to 6.30 leaves a bit of room for yeah, people before work...
0: people working in offices and yes. things like that. I mean, otherwise, Children, what are you schools. Yeah, what everything. are you saying to
1: people? What's the message? Yeah. So I think the fact that it's 8 to 6.30 gives that room for if you have to drop your kid off school, if you have to mm. you know leave before work, after work. Mm. 9 to 5 is it's just, not re- it's just not feasible. And it's not just the doctors who work, right? It's the nurses, the physios, the pharmacists. There are lots of other clinics that happen, the cervical smears, the vaccinations. So you have to think of the entire unit of services we provide, not just the doctor that sits there. Personally, I don't think nine, just having nine-to-five is feasible. And I just think that's going to mount the frustration way over the over the edge. All
0: right, well, I hear what you say. So, will you make your voice heard?
1: Absolutely. I think if all of us were to come together and voice this, I, I don't think we'd be in support of reducing hours at all. I, I, I'm confident I can speak on behalf of my colleagues, I don't think it would be benefiting anyone. Okay,
0: so if this proposal gets knocked out, and I hope you're right, and I hope you and your colleagues do speak out on it, because the the public PR sell on this is yeah. absolutely catastrophic yeah. at this time. But what are the positive ways out of this?
1: I think there needs to be a bit more transparency, if I'm honest, because people think... Doctors just sit there, like you said, they earn a lot of money and they don't see a lot of patients, what are they doing? I think there needs to be a bit of transparency of what actually happens in our working hours. It's not just seeing patients, it's going through prescriptions and blood results and Mm -hmm. hospital letters. There's so much that goes on behind the scenes that patients may not really understand. So it's not just that your doctor just sits there, sees you for 10 minutes and then has a cup of tea. So I think there's a lot more that could be relayed to the audience about transparency. I think that could be the first step. Um, and listening to our patients, listening to what they want. So having They choice. want appointments. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's what they want. No, but they want choice, don't they? Because there's a lot of people who now, don't want to leave work and come for a fit note, may just want to have a phone call, but there might be another population that want to yes. actually come in.
0: I get it, the, you know, the Zoom consultation suits certain people yeah. in certain situations, prescriptions, et cetera, but there are many, many others deeply unhappy. Well, it's an absolute pleasure, uh, Vina, to have you on the show and discuss these things. And I'm going to be watching very carefully to to hear your voice of (laughs) opposition on this subject. And I hope that tens of thousands of doctors join her in this. This is really, and you know, you heard it there. Patients are coming in to have their consultations and they're venting their frustration, their near anger at struggling to get appointments. It's an issue that really, really matters. Now, P&O ferries, very much in the news over the course of the last few weeks. And let me tell you, the M20 in Dover has been horrid ever since. Um, of course, they've sacked everybody. They've employed cheaper foreign workers. There have been questions raised over safety. Some of the ships not at sea, but one of the P&O ferries was at sea today. Um, and it was sailing from Scotland across larne And it lost power and was drifting in the Irish Sea. As I understand it, three lifeboats were sent. Well, let's go to Doogie Beatty and find out what the situation is now on the ground in inland.
2: Well hello, yes welcome to Lauren and behind me is the European Causeway. It was the vessel in question. It was also one of a couple of vessels that were uh, kept in port because of uh, it d- didn't match up to uh, the tests that were put in place for the crew and ship. 31 tests I believe that failed on. Now. The ship itself at two o'clock, the distress call came from the ship. Well, it said it was without power. That was just outside Madden uh, Lighthouses, just about two miles out of Lorne here. It was quite near Galley Bay. Two lifeboats from Red Bay were sent by the Coast Guard and one from Lorne itself. Also, the Coast Guard's helicopter was tasked. Now, the ferry regained power itself and was escorted back in here just after five o'clock. So it has been a, a little bit risky for everybody involved because where it actually broke down and lost power, if it was a stormy day, is a very, very tidal bay.
0: Yes. Yes, it really is. And, 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 you know, over the last couple of hundred years, scores and scores of shipwrecks on the Maiden's Rocks, which, of course, is why the lighthouse is there. It was a nice flat day, as you say. But what happens next? I mean, I mean, presumably this ship will now be grounded pending some sort of investigation. And I wonder, are you beginning to hear voices suggesting that the new cheaper crew that have been brought in are simply not up to the job?
2: Well I didn't say that but the RMT have definitely sort of went down that road that the crew weren't up to it. I mean uh, you can only suppose that you know this is not uncommon but it's it's not common either. I mean in 2003 I was on a boat that had to be towed back into Scotland from air that had broken down so I, I can't really point that direction immediately but there has been crews going on to this boat behind me within the last hour or so and you can tell that they are engineers they are investigating obviously what has happened here and at yeah. this moment in time it is too soon to tell but one thing is for sure this is one of the main routes out of Northern Ireland it is P&O's dock here in Northern Ireland and it is losing faith of the people that are shipping their goods from here and Stena line in the Belfast port have had to put on another boat in the last month or so and they are picking up a lot of business
0: Yeah, I bet they are. I bet they are. Well, thank you very much indeed, Doogie, for that. We're going to watch this very, very carefully. And let's see what comes as a result of the investigation. Uh, If it is said, ultimately, that something went wrong because of inexperienced crew, there will be hell to pay. Now, there was speculation all through yesterday, all through the last few weeks after the audacious bid by Elon Musk of $44 billion to buy Twitter. Many said he must be out of his mind. The company seems to pretty much always make a loss. But he set himself up, Musk, as an advocate, a champion of free speech. And there are many many of us, like myself, that have been big Twitter users over the years, that have genuinely noticed a real difference in how we're treated by Twitter, because our voices are seen to be on the centre-right of the political spectrum. So three cheers for Elon Musk is what I thought, but now I wonder, does he actually know what he's doing? Well, Will Guyatt is a technology journalist and knows a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of this than I do. Well, it's a big move, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it's bold. I, I said I'd eat my hat if it happened, and it's actually happened, so I'm probably going to have to eat my hat now. But um, until the press release was out yesterday, Nigel, I didn't believe, I genuinely didn't believe this was going to happen, and I've been following that company since it was formed. Um, for me, it's... He's now got it. He's shown he's got the money, but does he know how to run a company like that? He's got Tesla, he's got uh, SpaceX and his other interests. And although they're very separate companies, you can't help but wonder if he's trying to seek influence and build, uh, let's say, Tesla in China, what's not to say the Chinese government might say to him, oh, we've got some problems with Twitter. Could you discuss those at the same time? Well, well. You're a businessman, I mean, so you all understand these things better I <coughs> I mean, than that's
0: I interesting because Jeff Bezos asked that question yeah. overnight. The second richest man in the world, was asking questions about the richest man's acquisition. But as I understand it, um, Twitter was suspended in China some years ago.
3: Yeah, but there are still they are still talking and there's still influence about Twitter and the use of state accounts and those sorts of things on the platform. The biggest <laughs> challenge for me is what comes next, because Elon Musk has been really vocal about what he's going to do to Twitter. Yeah. He's been really clear and said, I want to restore public trust, I'm going to show you how the algorithm works, it's open source. So it means um, you could get a developer or somebody, Nigel, to look at it to see if you're feeling about not being, about being marginalised or not supported by the platform or not having your tweets shown well, by I, people. I really mean that. I I really mean that. Well, you you know, can, you'll be able to prove it. You'll be able to prove I, I it or can see it.
0: over the last couple of years, the stuff I put out
3: gets far less traction. Now, it could be that I'm very boring now. I don't know. I, I was just about to, I, I, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that you are, but what you will now be able to prove yes. is once and for all, if he promises to do what he's yes. saying, you'll be able to prove whether you've been penalised or not. At the same time, he's also saying, he said in a statement yesterday, I'm going to get rid of the bots on the platform, which has been the problem, and also uh, I want accounts to be authenticated human beings. Those are the two big problems that Twitter has been facing for the 15 years of its existence. So if he's rolling in on day one and suggesting he's going to fix that, he's setting a really high bar. At the same time, though, he's already suggested to staff that these plush offices they've got in central San Francisco are going to be turned into a homeless hostel because nobody's (laughs) doing any work. He's not making friends and influencing people within the company. Now, he might be the one saying, I'm going to make all of these changes, but he's going to need engineers and people to do it because he can't actually do all the coding and change the platform himself. But it is admirable what he's suggesting. And I've said ever since, even though I said I didn't believe it was true, I said this was either the best thing for Twitter or the worst thing for Twitter. I still don't know which one it is. Well, he'll have to fight the culture
0: within. A friend of mine spoke to a uh, quite senior Twitter executive in Europe and uh, when my name was mentioned. The language, I mean, the air went blue. Well, I'm not
3: surprised. No, well,
0: nor am I. But that does show there is a culture. There is an inbuilt bias uh, within Twitter. And we saw that, I think, very much in the last presidential elections in the USA, especially over Hunter Biden. We'll go out. Really interesting. Uh, do come back. Thank you. And tell us, because the battle now, as you say, is not to take the company over. That's done. It's how to change the company from within. And it won't be easy, but he is, let's put it, a remarkable man. Yeah. Thank you very much indeed. In a moment, well, I talk about eating your hat. I could have eaten my hat this morning. i tell you why. David Cameron has said something sensible. No, it really is true. More of that in a moment. I asked and debated at the top, are GPs failing us? Well, some of your responses that have come in... One viewer says, no, they need more of them and more time per patient. Well, that's a good reason perhaps not to shut the surgeries for an extra two and a half hours a day. They also need to be independent from government and pharmaceutical influence. Gosh, you're setting the bar very high there, in my view. Another says, GPs sadly lacking during the pandemic and they hid away from the public, only available by phone. They should have been suited up and facing the public as normal, just like the hospital nurses were. Mm, strong point. Alfie says to me, GPs have disgraced themselves over the past couple of years. When we needed them most, they were not there. John says, change is needed. I'm not sure if this is the right change, but at least it's something. Don't agree with that at all, John. And David says, are they failing? Question mark. They have failed already, full stop. Uh, This is, you know, the whole not just GPs, uh, but I personally believe that at the end of the day, when we genuinely count the cost of lockdown, we will see many more people have become seriously ill and died prematurely as a result of not having medical access during that period. I think we got it very, very wrong. But somebody overnight who's got it right is David Cameron. Now, of course, remember, the death of Sir David Amos was not that long ago. Um, And indeed, the trial took place just the other day and the murderer was an Islamic extremist who had been referred to Prevent, Prevent the organisation that is there to try and help to attempt to de-radicalise people. But David Cameron read an article in the Times today and I could scarcely believe some of it. Indeed, he wrote at one point when he's talking about some Muslim groups who are saying to prevent, look, we don't need you to get involved. We don't need the police to get involved. We will do all of this within our own communities. Cameron says, instead, the view seems to be that extremism should be dealt with by communities rather than by authorities. That is deeply worrying. We are one country with one legal system which protects all of us. Any notion of separate systems threatens the very cohesion we need to foster, And I've got to say, David Cameron, I agree with that absolutely 100%. So what is going wrong? Why are these groups not communicating? Why is government not getting a little bit tougher with them? Why has David Cameron effectively come out of political retirement to make these very, very important points? And of course, he also argues that there are problems with far-right extremism in the country, too. But the idea, he says, that prevent should be rubbished by those who are attempting to prevent, prevent from doing their job, this is plain wrong. Well, Sam Armstrong is Director of Communications for the Henry Jackson Society think tank. Sam, it is very interesting what Cameron said, isn't it?
4: Yeah, it is. And it's nice to see someone who's been right at the very top of government saying it. There's been a lot of us who have been... Pointing out for some time that Prevent is a program that the government almost was embarrassed to admit it had for several years. It was set up under Blair, who, much like Cameron, was actually always quite sound on the issue of uh, extremism and Islamism in this country. And uh, it it was almost immediately attacked and decried as uh, persecuting those in in the Muslim community. And that's actually despite the fact, when you dig into the statistics, that despite the fact that um, MI5's 90% 90% of their terror watch list are Islamist. Actually, more than twice as many far-right extremists are getting referred to prevent um, than are Islamists. And and even so those... who does the referrals to prevent? This is part of the problem. It's done by teachers, um, hospital workers, right. community leaders, often people in the public sector, some of whom have that famous left-wing bias we've seen, that, we, that we know of. And I know of cases in which... People who have shared or liked your videos of you talking around immigration in and around a, oh, a school, who have been referred to Prevent, that is not that is not any indicator of terrorist threat whatsoever. Yet I'm afraid actually the programme has been captured and, and turned into a system in which really the people who are the threat are getting are slipping through the cracks. So there's no question. There's no absolutely no no
0: center of idea that Prevent is disproportionately looking at cases of Islamic extremism, that's out of the window and I get that, but if it doesn't get cooperation from the Muslim Council of Great Britain, from all of these different organisations,
4: where do we go from here? Well I, I think you're right to, to identify the fact that it has a problem reaching those that. that uh, need it most. What I would say is David Cameron is absolutely right. If if the community is not prepared to engage, yeah. and all too much of it, I'm afraid, isn't, then the state has to get tougher. It has to go in there and say, no young man, some of the stuff you're going around saying and doing is unacceptable. If you continue down this line, we're going to look at mandatory coercive action, including prosecuting you for some of the lower level terrorist offences, or you can engage in this programme. But it is not helped by so-called Muslim leaders, many of whom have got blue ticks on Twitter, big names, columns in The Guardian, are actively attempting to undermine a programme that is designed to keep all of us safe. So where does the buck stop? Is it with the Home Secretary? It's with the Home Secretary. It's gone out to a review being done by William Shawcross, who's a good man, who'll do a good job of the review. The Home Secretary's already said that she wants to uh, restore the imbalance, so we actually deal with far, far more uh, Islamist extremist cases and far fewer uh, far-right cases, proportionately within the programme. So I think there's some good stuff coming, but sadly, it's too late in a sense. Ali Harbi Ali, the man who killed Sir David Amos... He'd been referred to Prevent, should have been taken up.
0: And he's not the only example, is he?
4: More than 50% of recent terrorist attacks uh, in this country have been people who are quote-unquote known to the authorities.
0: Sam Armstrong, it's an issue that will come back again and again and again. Thank you for helping explain Prevent to us. Thank you very much. Now... Talking of Priti Patel, well, I'm going to call it the what the Farage moment, but it's not really, is it? Because do you remember the plans? We were told it's all going to be sorted in the channel. We've got a plan to push back the migrant dinghies. And we saw, didn't we, a few months ago, examples of border force out there uh, with their own inflatable ribs, even with jet skis. And the idea was they'd turn the migrant dinghies around and they'd all happily sail back to the beaches of dunkirk calais uh, or elsewhere um, it was never actually going to work it was never practical i didn't think in any way at all um, and i'm afraid just ahead of a judicial review that was due to take place in the high court which probably the government would have lost uh, given uh, we still have european human rights on our on our law book, under the Human Rights Act, it's been scrapped. So no more pushbacks. What we will see, what we will see now, is whether Rwanda works. And there are some that are saying Rwanda's working. It's a success because virtually no migrants have come now for the last six or seven days. Believe you me, I know this subject. That is nothing to do with the prospect of being shipped off to Rwanda. It's because there's been a persistent strong northeasterly wind in the English Channel. When it gets calm again, the boats will continue to come. Something I thought that really was actually rather sensible today was Sir Patrick Vallance, our Chief Scientific Officer. And you remember press conferences day after day with him and Chris Whitty and the Prime Minister. And others, and Sir Patrick Vallance, our Chief Scientific Officer, has said that we really must stop fear-mongering about climate change, fear-mongering about net zero. He says that for himself, he has not yet stopped eating meat or flying. Um, and I think that's very sensible. He goes on to say that he absolutely supports net zero by 2050 as a principle. We shouldn't get hysterical about it. And you keep hearing reports of so many depressed, upset, scared teenagers because they're kind of being taught and told through school, elsewhere and social media. Um, (laughs) Not least of which, of course, they hear stuff from Extinction Rebellion and all these groups. And they're told that the end of the world is nigh. The Great Extinction is coming and it's affecting the mental health of young people and what Valence is saying is let's just take a sensible, let's just take a balanced approach to this problem and I have to say really absolutely full marks to Sir Patrick Valence for saying that the last thing we need is complete and utter hysteria. Now this whole question of GPs and I thought it was really interesting having Vina in earlier You know, telling me that half the consultation now are the patients complaining about the fact it's taken them so long to get that appointment. Well, some more of your thoughts coming in from viewers. Um, One viewer says, why do they get to vote? I'm sure if anyone could get to vote for shorter hours, they would probably, they probably would, provided the pay wasn't cut, surely. It should be their salary payers that vote on this. Well, I have to say, I'm not sure a referendum on this across the country would be a terribly good idea, but this is what's going to happen at a BMA conference that takes place next month. Dave says, they are on the cusp of failing entirely. They have let us down, and I worry about getting ill, as you never see one in person. And this, again, is the point I keep making over and over This is what we hear as we go around the country with this show. And I would be very surprised if in Medway on Thursday, we don't get this complaint from many, many of the attendees. Another viewer says, I don't think they get a lot of bad press for no reason. They are incredibly well trained and work hard, I think. Well, look, um... Do they get good press? Do they get bad press? All I can tell you is this, I've never known GPs as a profession to get any bad press throughout my lifetime. They're beginning to get it now because people can't meet them face to face. And it isn't just the pandemic, I know. Marion says, they have failed us. Give the jobs to people who want to work hard. Marion, they've actually got to be trained and it does take quite a long time for them to get there. And Stuart says, they aren't all bad, but let's face it, they haven't had a good couple of years. No, they haven't had a good couple of years and that essential bond of trust that exists in local communities with their GP is beginning to break down and that can only be a very very bad thing. Now, my main guest today here in the studio is a man with a long career in journalism but a man who's become a biographer. In fact, I would say without doubt, the most feared biographer, the rich and famous do not want him writing a book about them. We'll find out what motivates him. We'll find out how does he understand what makes people tick? How does he assess who's good and who's bad? I'll be joined in a moment on Talking Pints by Tom Bauer. It's my favourite part of the day. Yes, it really is, because the GB News Tavern is declared open. It's time for Talking Pints, and I'm joined by Tom Bower. Tom, welcome... Thank you very to much. ...to the programme. Sure. Very good to see yeah. you. Mm. Now, I... The whole, the whole area of biography... Cos I've just had it done to me by yeah. Michael Crick, who's written a book about me, I and I have to confess, I haven't read it... Um, but lots of people have told me things about it. And from what they say, you know, he's actually not been too unpleasant about me and I've got nothing to worry about, and that's what everyone tells me. I'm guessing your subjects, when they find out you're on their case, are they pretty scared? I hope so. Although <laughs> I do fail. Well, you say that, but that, this is what interests me. I said this before the break about, you know, what your motivations are. I mean, you've had a very, very long career in journalism, you know, at the BBC for a quarter of a century uh, producing. And hey, the BBC did do fantastic documentaries, didn't it? They did. It was a great time. You know, real investigative journalism, breaking amazing stories, uh, making and breaking governments to a certain extent as well. So you've had this long career in journalism and you've now used that skill to write, write books, write, write biographies. Uh, But I wonder, when you pick a subject, and you, you know we've had Prince Charles, and we've had Richard Branson, and we've had a whole host of people, Maxwell, who I'm quite keen to talk to you about, a whole host of people, do you go into writing a biography assuming the worst about the individual, assuming the best about the individual, being open-minded? How do you pick and choose those that you write about? Well, I only pick and choose people who are influential. They've got to have power
5: or want to exercise influence over society. I don't pick people who uh, don't enjoy the exercise of telling people what to do and how governments should work or run governments. And invariably those people are by definition narcissists and people who have tried to cover up their past. And my technique, my enjoyment is to find the victims of their climb up the greasy pole who tell me the truth about what happened in the past, which they've tried to cover up. And that invariably leads to some amazing revelations and the truth about people. I mean, whether it's Tony Blair or Gordon Brown or uh, Boris Johnson recently, <laughs> let alone Tiny Rowland and Mohammed Fayed, all of them. They've all got skeletons in the cupboard. They've all done things which they would prefer us not to know about. But at the same time, they're trying to Tell us how to run their lives, how to run our lives, so that's
0: the incentive and so is it for those that reach the top, you know whether it's Robert Maxwell newspaper, tycoon, uh, you know Blair, successful prime minister, winning three general elections, I mean, is it necessary to be a narcissist then to, to to those that strive to reach the top? are they all narcissists? Yes, there's nothing wrong with being a narcissist. I mean, you can't get to the top and stay at the
5: top. If you're sensitive to criticism, if you don't have a total and utter belief in yourself, because if you don't believe in yourself, then you won't get people to follow you. So there's nothing, in my view, wrong with that. Uh, when you say Tony Blair was a successful prime minister, yes, that, in your terms he was, because he won elections. He won but in my terms, he was a terrible failure. Uh, and the book, which I think of the 26 I've written is the most, most important, exposes how Blair was actually a rather poor prime minister. I mean, he lied about so many things, Mm. destroyed so many things, not least the Iraq war, but also on immigration, on the health service, and on education, Uh, it was bad on the army. I mean, there's a lot of things on energy. The reason we have an energy problem now... They started it. He started it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All those things. Uh, And that all started under Blair, and I found that fascinating because he had got the media on his side. Everyone was saying how marvellous he was. And I discovered the truth by literally interviewing the civil servants at the bottom of the pile and working my way up to the permanent secretaries and the departments or the generals and field marshals and discovering the truth. Now, on the other hand, of course, I never get their cooperation except in two cases. And that was very interesting uh, because the two people who I did talk to and got on well with uh, were Simon Cowell and Bernie Eccleston. Okay. And what happened there was, in the case of uh, Simon Cowell, i always wanted to write about music. And someone said to me that I should do Cowell. And I said, well, I don't know about that. He's not that important. And, of course, he was critical. So I began digging into his past and suddenly got a phone call from a very famous person who said, Simon Cowell would like to meet you. And I said, well, I never meet the people I write about uh, until perhaps towards the end. Anyway, I met him. And we had the most amazing eight months together, flying in his private jet between London and L.A. <laughs> and, of course, once he was, once he was at 37,000 feet in his, ex, in his private jet, he was with me for ten hours. He had to talk. And I got some amazing story. And the same then happened with Bernie Eccleston. Um, and they were very interesting people, because they're both men of so would, would they be
0: authorised by no, in that case or not? No, because they hated them. Did they?
5: Oh, God. (laughs) Uh, The the, the Cowl one, I had the front page of The Sun for five days in succession. As the editor said to me, even Diana only had four days when she died. And Bernie Eccleston said to me, I could sue you for libel. I said, of course you could. No, no, they had a lot of stuff they hated. Have you ever been sued for libel? Endlessly. Endlessly? Endlessly. And and have you lost many cases? Not one. (laughs) It all started (laughs) with the BBC, but the most, of course, the most vociferous litigant was Robert Maxwell, 11 writs.
0: Yeah. And now, he
5: didn't stop. He started this whole idea of destroying the author by bombarding him and the publisher and the booksellers and everyone with writs to suppress. Because, and I've always, I was rather proud of because it because that was one of my great achievements. It was in 1988, I wrote his biography called The Outsider. Yeah. And predicted that because he was a crook, he'd go down three years later and it was to the day, 1991 although I didn't push him over the boat. Uh, but, you know, it, he was... And his crooked life was fascinating.
0: Yes, it was all an invention, wasn't it, right from 1944? No, well, he was
5: a very or... talented, courageous man. I mean, he was an astonishing businessman. Mm. But he always was a crook. Yeah. <laughs> he was fa- his father was a horse smuggler in Ruthenia, so he never knew any, what the honest business was. And then he had his chance when he was in Berlin at the end of the Second World War, and ran amazing black market deals there and then brought that talent to Britain. And now his daughter,
0: of course, who's yeah. re- reached the same level of infamy, or well,
5: not quite. But... And his sons. I mean, Kevin and Ian were instrumental in parceling off all the pension fund shares. Yeah. They were, I sat through their trial for a year. It was an astonishing trial. Yeah, I mean,
0: that, the whole thing was a terror. Now, in that case, there clearly are genuine victims, people that were really hurt by their actions. I guess you can never reach the top completely in life without a few people falling by the wayside, can you?
5: Well, there are honest businessmen. I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think Richard Branson, who I've written two books about, is one of the most successful businessmen and one of the most dishonest businessmen. And the victims are legion. There are just so many victims. But what's interesting, you see, about a victim of a businessman is this. Invariably, they're businessmen themselves. And no business owner wants to admit they've been raped. They don't want to admit they've been defeated. Yeah. And Richard Branson raped many, many decent, honest people who came to him with great ideas. And he was very, very ruthless with them, to put it legally polite. And uh, those people then told their stories, whether it was in the music business, whether it was Virgin Cruises, whether it was the space business, where his. His dishonesty on the space race thing is, a, is legion. I mean, Musk has really exposed Branson there. But also the trains, everything. He was a very, very ruthless and untrustworthy man, but gone away with it. Very vicious and suing. He sued me twice and
0: lost. People sue you, and you say, you know, they never get anywhere because you're confident of what you write, and you check what you write. Do you ever feel any other threats from the rich and famous? Oh, Mohammed
5: Fayed. There was a wonderful story. I did Fayed. Uh, uh, I did Tiny Rowland, who ran I an remember. amazing operation yeah. in Africa. And Fayed loved that book. It gave me lots of help because he hated... They were competitors and rivals because of the battle for Harrods and everything. And uh, because I was getting on very well with Fayed, I saw him a lot when he had Diana in the south of France in August 1970, 1997. Yeah. I was, went to see him every week, twice in Harrods, because the story was phenomenal. And if you remember at the time, it was just in the aftermath of the Cash for Questions, Neil Hamilton, he had a lot of information. because He was always blackmailing, bugging, and doing scurrilous things. Anyway, when Diana died that Saturday night, I arranged to go with him, uh, his people, the following day to the Ritz in Paris, where she had set off from on her fatal last journey. And when I was there, I discovered that Fayed was something beyond belief. So I decided to write the biography of Mohammed Fayyad because no one really knew who he was and what he was up to. Anyway, to cut the story short, one of the most important people was the Sheikh of D- Ab- Ab- Dubai, the Maktoum family, where he'd made his fortune. And the Maktoums hated him because he'd taken, skimmed off 25% for himself, put it in his pocket. One day I got a call from the security chief of the Maktoums and said, I've got bad news, good news, and bad news for you. I said, well, what's the bad news? <laughs> the bad news, he said, is that Mohammed Fayyad has put out a contract to break your fingers so you can't write your book. Charming. I said, what's the good news? He said, he couldn't find anyone in London to do it. I said, what's the next bad news then? He's now looking in Liverpool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It's a very good story.
5: And would he have meant it, do you think? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. He was ruthless. I mean, you know, I never went into Harrah's, uh, because, of course, he had me arrested for shoplifting. His head of security tried endlessly to entrap me in all sorts of things. He's dead now. Former head of the
0: Scotland Yard uh, fraud squad. I mean, fired an unbelievable piece of cake. What about those people who don't necessarily choose um, their lives? They're not businessmen, they're not politicians, but they're born into position. Prince Charles, born hmm. into his position. He's not had much choice, really, has he? He's right. had to go into it. Um, but Prince Harry, of course, has been, some would argue, taken away from his position by Meghan Markle. And hmm. I, under- I understand Meghan is your next book, is that yeah, right? Yeah, just finished it. Yeah. yeah,
5: Just finished it? Yeah. I think the thing about Charles is, I wrote a book which I really did enjoy writing, is you're right, uh, he was born into it, yeah. but he did some extraordinarily stupid things. He did some great things but behaved in some ways bizarrely. Is he a decent
0: human being? Uh,
5: he's a very selfish man, but he is decent. He wants to do well. Yeah. I think he'll be a, a, a questionable king. I think the background is just too, too difficult now. But, uh, you know, he's helped a lot of young people through the Prince's Trust. He was very much in advance of the public mood and the environment. But on the other hand, with his strange views on medicine... Or architecture, in terms of some people and other things, and his extraordinary lifestyle, very, very self indulgent, um, I'd say pretty questionable. Um, <laughs> well, I, I hope you're wrong because the monarchy be the act- king.
0: I mean, the monarchy served us very well as a country. I hasn't agree,
5: it? I agree, and that's why I'm doing Meghan
0: Markle. Yes. So the book's finished. Book's finished. Being released. Sometime in the near future. Right, well, I'm not going to ask you questions about it. because you, you can, won't... no, you well, can. Well, I mean, I, I mean, how awful is she?
5: Well, I think the thing about Meghan Markle is that she's fascinating. And I think what you've got to take into account is that however awful she has been uh, vis-a-vis the British royal family, mm. in her terms, she has been an amazing success. After all, you take a woman who's an insignificant actress... I ne- failure, I'd never heard of her. No-one had heard of her. <laughs> who'd had endlessly unsuccessful relationships... And she's now a global star. Now, who's... Is that not a success? Yes, it is a success, and she'll dump Harry, will she, at some point? I don't think so. No? No, he's terribly happy in California. You know, it's much nicer watching surface in Santa Monica than uh, shaking hands in Scunthorpe. Well, you
0: say that, but wasn't the army a really important part of who yes, Harry he couldn't was?
5: Yes, there. he couldn't stay there. He, he, was, you know, he wasn't clever enough to be promoted.
0: Now, talking of dark secrets, and you try and examine all of these secrets. Not, so you were a, me, a 1968 <laughs> revolutionary, <laughs> yes, I Yes, I was, yes. Yeah, along yeah. with people like Danny Cohn-Bendit, yeah. who I knew and in the Parliament. Of them. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that was an extraordinary period. Yes. A lot of those people, of course, did go on to achieve... Really, quite prominent positions. How long? I know, so if you're a Marxist in 1968, yeah, and you joined the BBC in 1970, yeah, I guess you were about right for the BBC, really, Absolutely. You? <laughs> <laughs> it's,
5: it's like a glove.
0: <laughs> and how left-wing are you today? Oh, very, very unleft-wing. I, I've got a
5: social conscience, and I think actually my books are all, in the end, all this digging into these people of power and the rest is all based on that period where I was very skeptical and cynical and quizzical about the power brokers. So I think I have no apologies about that. No. It was a great period, and rightly, uh, you you know, young people should start with the heart looking after the oppressed, and when you get older, you (laughs) have other considerations. (laughs) But it was an extraordinary period to grow up in. I was at the LSE, not far from here. It was the finest place for education in those days. And uh, not a minute regret. It was excellent. I, I did law there. I became a
0: barrister, and I had the most amazing teachers. I was sort of half joking about the Marxists at the BBC, no, but we do look at the BBC. Many oh, of us look at the yeah. BBC as being not just centre left, but very metropolitan, very yeah. very London centric in its thinking. Yeah. I mean, are things? And I know you spent a long time there, yeah. and you're proud of the work you did at the BBC. Mm. But do you really think, in broadcasting terms? that the licence fee is sustainable going on. I
5: do, because I don't think there's any alternative. But I think what you will realise is, and people don't, is that when I was at BBC, it was amazingly inventive. And we actually did have to consider balance, so that if there wasn't balance, there was a huge row, which is people don't understand that anymore now. They just think it's propaganda, we'll put it out, and don't, I mean, Newsnight, it's just sheer left-wing... You saw with Emily Maitlis. That, That would never have happened. In my day, though, it was impossible even for five minutes. OK. Uh, so you had to always balance and produce facts and all the rest of it. But the most important thing about the BBC in those days was that it took risk. It was entertaining. It was original. It was unbelievably uh, exciting. Well, even the comedy. I mean, they
0: pushed the edges, did exactly. they, of, of what, of what exactly. could be accepted I mean, and not?
5: You know, that was the week, that, that week there was and all that. Thing. Yeah. You couldn't do that now. There was one man was responsible for destroying the whole BBC risk-taking free access. And that was John Burt. Mm. And he was a control freak, an untalented man who actually suppressed original thinking. And the BBC, sadly, has never recovered from that. So we go on with the
0: license fee, but we have to get a better rejuvenated BBC. We just need to get different people.
5: I mean, I think the the structure is every country in Europe has a state uh, license fee broadcaster. And you look at the decline of Netflix. It's terrible now. Uh, look at ITV. It's not doing well. The BBC has got three billion a year. They should make some
0: great programmes. They, yeah, they really should be very original. They be. <laughs> no, I agree but with they you. They choose the wrong people. Oh, I agree with and you. And it's the people, not the structure. No, well, it's, you've had a fascinating career, Tom. You really have. I'm very pleased. You haven't written a book about me, I have
5: to tell you. Well, there was a ch- there was a moment. I Nigel? Did, yeah, I did there wonder. Was, if we'd had the fourth bottle of wine, <laughs> we might yeah, have gotten
0: yeah, to we we got had to dinner. it. We had dinner a few years ago, and I'm thinking, this guy's meeting me with an ulterior motive. <laughs> but it didn't happen. Tom, thank you for joining me. on Pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you very much indeed. We've got a couple of minutes left on programme. It's the Farage. I'm keeping Tom here just in case I get in deep, deep trouble. I will use his experience. Barry asks me, what do you think about the lowering of the voting age? Blimmin' ridiculous. I think that you... To vote, you should also be able to stand. I don't want 16-year-olds being in Parliament as MPs. Any thoughts, Tom, on the voting age? I think it's 18. I I agree with you. Yeah, I think 18's right. Julie asks... What does Musk's ownership of Twitter mean for ordinary folk? I'll tell you this. Twitter is not the real world, and I get that. But so much of what you read in newspapers, see on television and hear on radio, comes through Twitter. Those, the opinion formers, the journalists, they are addicted to Twitter. Uh, And therefore, if Musk is successful in turning Twitter into a genuine beacon of free speech, whatever you think of him, the idea that Trump, was banned from Twitter, whilst the Taliban were on Twitter the day they retook Kabul, Is crazy. I mean, yeah. you're on the left of the but, politics, i uh, on the right. No, but free I,
5: I, I think free speech. No, I'm a great admirer of Musk. Yeah, I think, I so. think he is sensational. Uh, his rocket is, works, it's great. The electric car is terrific. I don't know why anyone should be against him. And I think the idea of opening up Twitter... Is to right. And the fact that the left are
0: screaming blue murder proves he's right. <laughs> well, I, think I agree. The illiberal liberals, as I generally call them. Dave asks, with the NHS on its last legs, what alternative do we have? Well, I'm not, I don't think it's on its last legs, but the argument I'm making is that we're beginning to lose faith in the NHS. And it, I mean, the Labour Party's great achievement, uh, you know, and we've trusted it for three quarters of a century and more. I was interviewing a GP earlier on on this programme and she said half of her consultation now are patients complaining they can't get an appointment. There is a problem now.
5: A huge problem. I mean, bureaucracy is horrendous and the private sector does it so much better. The problem is that uh, elective surgery. The problem is the people, the managers, the structure and the motive. And what's interesting is in Europe where they have state health service, nobody has copied
0: the NHS. No No other country. No, and they have more insurance base in France and all the rest of it. Isn't that fascinating? You see Tom here, who, you know, self-describes as being on the left, but makes arguments like the private sector does things so much better. Thank you, everybody, for your questions. Thank you, Tom, for joining me this evening. I'll be back with you tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock, as usual. Thank you, and good night.